0: I love the idea that here was a Jewish artist reading both religious art and political art, and having been trained to understand that the Bible itself is basically a political book, while a religious text, uh, you know, what could be more uh, important to daily living than dealing with matters of justice and equality and, uh, and freedom?
1: Welcome to Warfare of Art and Law the podcast that focuses on how justice does or doesn't play out when art and law overlap. Hi everyone, it's Stephanie, and that was Irvin Unger discussing the artist Arthur Schick. In the following conversation, Mr. Unger describes what first pulled him in to the world of Arthur Schick and what has driven him to become an expert on this fighting artist. Irvin Unger, welcome to Warfare of Art and Law. Thank you so much for being on the podcast.
0: I'm delighted to be with you, Stephanie.
1: Would you start by describing what it is about Arthur Schick and his work that drew you in and gave rise to you becoming an expert on him and his prolific career?
0: When Schick died in 1951, uh, I wasn't uh, quite uh, three years old, so I never knew him. That's Number one, nor did I, uh, nor uh, did anyone in my family ever hear of him. Uh, I, you know, I wasn't related. There was really, and people who I met for the most part didn't know him once I became excited about him. So uh, this is uh, totally uh, a case in which I actually fell in love with You know, a dead person who, you know, I never knew, nor did anyone else know. Uh, What really drew me to Arthur Schick at first, uh, I must admit, was that it was a practical matter. I, I needed gifts for people in my wedding party over forty years ago, and walked into a uh, Jewish bookstore in Manhattan, the West Side, probably in the thirties or forties. West 30s or West 40s, and I found on a shelf um, one of his uh, reproduced books of the Passover Haggadah that tells the story of the exodus of uh, Jews from ancient Egypt used by Jews on Passover, and I bought this book as a uh, gift for people at my wedding party. I think I probably spent about $18 a piece, and, and that was my first recoll- that's my first recollection of meeting Arthur Schick. Um, and then I was a pulpit rabbi for 13 years. I didn't think about Arthur Schick, uh, at all. Uh, and uh, after I decided to leave the rabbinate and entered the world of buying and selling of rare books and documents, um, I rediscovered Schick's art in an antique shop. My foot kicked a box of prints underneath a table. Uh, I pulled the box out, the, Bright colors jumped out at me. These were holiday prints and very much like the religious art that I had seen, you know, 13 years earlier in the Haggadah and decided to mat these works of art, uh, sell them at book fairs, uh, which I was exhibiting. Uh, I soon discovered uh, a book called The New Order, which was the first anti-Nazi book of its kind that Schick had illustrated in 1941 Uh, a number of months before the U.S. entered the war. In a sense, here was an artist who was combining both messages of of, uh, religious thought and political activism. And this was sort of, um, uh, here was Dick who was visually articulating what I sort of knew from texts and from discussions and sort of felt that there was a way that I could speak to the world, but but not through my own voice, but really through chicks. And I became, when I then, as that progressed, um, I began to see that this was not only someone who deeply loved uh, his own people, the Jewish people, but how he used it, his value system as a Jew uh, to be an advocate for humanity uh, at large. And it was that, uh, that appealed to me very, very much, which is basically to say that whoever you are, whatever your tradition, care about that and figure out what within that, that helps make the world a better place. And that was really what was the spark uh, that initiated my my early interest in Arthur Schick.
1: From there, where where did you begin your research and educating yourself on his work and locating it?
0: Well, you know, at that time, uh, there really was. This was, I guess, this was the late nineteen uh, eighties, early nineteen nineties that I became interested. And in. I really, th- the problem was that there was nothing really to read about Schick. Um, you, you, you really, uh, um, I, I really didn't know where to start. But but what what happened was I became friendly with a and. and uh, you know, there was one book. It was written in 1980 in Yiddish in Israel, but I had no access to that. That I didn't. I don't read Yiddish, so that was of no use. It was not a, 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 a illustrated book to any degree. Um, but um, at the time, uh, the early late 1980s, as I mentioned, um, that I became interested in Arthur Schick by kicking this box of prints in this uh, antique shop. There was a man who. Simultaneously, really within a few months in Southern California, a man named George Gooch, and not uh, Jewish, but totally interested and involved in Arthur Schick's art. And I mentioned the not Jewish part because I thought it was a, a really important to Schick's legacy that I, as a rabbi, uh, should really, you know, step up by level of interest in Schick. Well, that's a, that's another story, which well maybe we can get to. But in any case, George had discovered in a as a collector of um, of uh, of, uh, of stamps, he had gone into an antique shop uh, in Orange County and found uh, uh, title pages that Schick had done of various countries, uh, leaves that would be title pages in albums. If you collected the stamps of Great Britain or France or the United States or Poland or Israel, Schick had illuminated these uh, visual histories of these countries. He bought a bunch of those, became so interested in Arthur Schick that he, he found the warehouse of prints in Canada, which he purchased. He became friendly with Arthur Schick's daughter. Uh, she was moving from Westchester down to Florida, had uh, troves of, of boxes of Schick archives and documents in her basement, which George ended up buying and preserving. I got to know George in the early 1990s. Uh, our, we we traded information back and forth. He started a newsletter, uh, had an exhibition of Schick's art, uh, met another man who was a collector. Uh, I became more and more interested in Schick. Became very jealous that George owns all these archives and documents and uh, we would have discussions about my my purchasing this material from him, but he wanted several hundred thousand dollars for it, and rightfully so, because the material, uh, that combined with the prints, the reproduction prints in the warehouse, which were vintage prints from the 40s, was certainly worth whatever he was asking. I just didn't have any money uh, to be able to buy these goods. Um, But my interest in Chick kept uh, increasing to the extent that I you know felt that he needed to be brought to the world, and the way to do that was to find uh prominent museums that would exhibit his work uh but not having any relationship to really you know the first g or a plus a or a plus museums or b or b plus museums i I actually did call a friend of mine who was the head of a institute in Chicago, the spurtus Institute, which had also under its auspices, the third largest Jewish museum in the world. And I would call my friend Byron, uh, Rabbi Byron Sherwin, on the phone, who was the intellectual head of this institution. And Byron, you know, I called up, and I, I remember this was sometime in the mid to late 1990s. Byron, have you ever heard of? Uh, after we talked, you know, I asked him if he heard of Arthur Schick, and actually, he said he had remembered it from a child childhood and and uh, and I asked him what he thought about an exhibition in Chicago and Byron told me it was too cold Irv you know that'd be a great idea and then three months later I called him and I asked him how his son was doing and Byron says Jason's doing fine and said well you know what do you think about a chic exhibition in Chicago and he said Irv thanks for calling and then three months later Byron called me and said hey Irv what do you think about an art exhibition in Chicago and I said That'd be fabulous. Would you like to curate it? And I said, I'm not even sure what it, being a curator means, but I'd be a delighted. And it was that point, that night, I think I woke up. I have to own all this material that George Gooch has, because if I'm going to do an exhibition, I need to be able to do research. You know, a book needs to be written. And so I think, I, you know, that morning, I, may have, I think I went to my wife and I asked her, Marge, would you mind if we took out a second mortgage on our home? you know, uh, and uh, believe it or not, my wife agreed to, it. I went to my dad, who I remember lived in just outside of Trent, New Jersey. I went to daddy had a $150,000 home and he was, dad was in his eighties. I said, dad, can I borrow another $50,000 from you? And then I went to Gooch and asked him if he'd take a third on my house, which he agreed to do. And I was all in for several hundred thousand dollars to buy all these archives and reference material that George owned and ultimately took responsibility for this Small society had started of a nonprofit the Arthur Schick Society, um, and I basically from there had the materials. I the exhibit opened in Chicago, uh, I think 1998, and the first illustrated book of Arthur Schick was published. This illuminated the art of Arthur Schick, which I created, and then I was off and running.
1: And from there, you put on. Many other shows over the years, and you've talked with other people, and so the details of Schick's life have uh, come to you by word of mouth. At that point, is that right?
0: Well, then, 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 you know, being an antiquarian bookseller, um, and I would exhibit at shows. Uh, one show, some man walked up to me, and he saw that I was exhibiting some prints and some illustrated books, and he said to me, you know, or." Uh, I have some original art. Would you like to sell it for me and represent me? And I did. And I began to handle Arthur Schick artwork uh, at shows. I began to buy uh, on my own pieces and dealers began to see that that was something I was specializing in. I made a, a commitment to myself that you know I, I saw myself really pretty much as an average bookseller. Um I saw myself as a very good rabbi and and had really tried to become the best rabbi I could. Um, of course I got worn out and, and I, so I transitioned to the world of rare books, but there in Arthur Schick, I found that if I really applied myself, I think I could become really the most knowledgeable person in the world about his art because I was self-motivated because of how important I thought it was. And, the way to do that was also to be able to see as much original art as possible and to write about it. And because every time I buy a work of art, there was no descriptions about it. Schick never wrote descriptions of his art, neither did any person who owned it ever take time to do research on it. So every work of art that I bought over the years, I'd have to do my own research on it. And I had the archives to go you know, to work from because it had, you know, exhibition catalogs in it, it had it had um uh, newspaper articles that you know magazines the covers of of which chick's art was on and 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 I was so every every work of art so i i began to buy as much art as I could, and since no one paid very much attention to chick's art, very few people knew him you know i was buying his work relatively inexpensively. It wasn't being sold at public auctions where the auction houses were able to write anything about Schick, the artwork itself. They never had the reference materials. They Nothing existed. So I had to create a whole body of material. And that's why the first book was important at the um, uh, to be created as a result of the Spurtis exhibition. So... Um, all of this drove me forward, and eventually the next exhibition was at the Library of Congress, and how that came about is a very interesting story, and then the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington in 2002, for which another book was created by the museum, for which I served as its um, as its consultant, and it was fabulous. I loved that part, because now the idea was that museums, by putting their resources, their people, their investigative teams they could go out and do research that i couldn't do and that began to you know spread the word and gather more information and and i felt like if i could figure out how to empower other people to also become you know embrace chick's art and to understand what it was we could spread the word about who this artist was and to bring into the world
1: uh, there's also been an exhibit in Berlin. Would you describe that? And I'm curious, and I assume that was the first time Schick was exhibited in Germany, but is that the case? Yeah,
0: and I, I can jump right to that. Let me just simply say how an exhibition comes about the Library of Congress is a fascinating story in itself, and we can come back. Well, then there's a fascinating story. How do you get the first one person art exhibition at the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum? It's another story. Every one of these has, you know, some intrigue and it's no, it's not the standard way. I'm not sure if there is a standard way for what, uh, for our outside person, uh, encouraging a major institution to have an exhibit. I'm not sure if there's a, a way that happens in the art world. Um, but I never filled out forms or wrote these letters of proposal that maybe are the way it's done. So everything sort of has a, an interesting uh, manner in which this whole thing progressed. So I'm not sure. Do you want to go to the next then exhibit after the spurtus in Chicago to the Library of Congress and then proceed from there? Or do you want to go right to the German one?
1: I'm happy to walk through each of them. So the Library of Congress, and then I believe it was the Holocaust Museum, and then the German.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, well, if the listeners have patience for us, I'll tell the stories. Um, and happily, they can turn off any time they want, but but let me, let me say this. So when the exhibit was taking place in, in uh, Chicago, I, someone told me that there was a fellow at the Library of Congress who knew about Arthur Schick. And I called up uh, who, uh, the fellow who turned out who was the head of prints and graphics and photographs uh, at LC. I asked him, I told him that I, I uh, you know, I heard he was aware of Schick, and would he in any way consider meeting me in Chicago with the idea that maybe there'd be an exhibit that would take place at the Library of Congress? And believe it or not, he actually said yes. I, I can't believe it. I guess he just shows you she'd always ask and. Uh, Harry uh, Katz flew in from uh, Washington, D.C. I flew in from from the Bay Area, San Francisco area, which is where I live. We met there, and after he saw the show, he says, Irv, this is fabulous. He says, we should have an exhibit at the Library of Congress, but we can't. I said, Harry, why is, Why not? He says, because, you know, we have millions of, you know, documents here and paintings and books, as you know, library, and we have to exhibit, you know, material that's in our collection. So I said to him, Harry... You mean to say that if you had important and uh, a uh, collection of Arthur Schick artwork, you would have an exhibit? And he said yes. And at that point, I knew the person who owned the original of the Declaration of Independence that Schick had illuminated in 1950, which is one year before he died, uh, a non commissioned work. And I knew the person who owned that. And I went to him and I said to him, You know, would you consider donating? this artwork to the Library of Congress, because if you do, I'm sure we could get an exhibit there. And not only did Van say that he would exi- he would donate it, but he would do so anonymously. So it wasn't about a tax break or anything like that, but he, he loved Schick. He believed in Schick's Americana, and he was willing to do that. And And when that happened, I then went to Schick's daughter, Alexandra, uh, who I had become friendly with from the early 1990s, and for whom... Throughout the rest of her life, the next 25 years, I maintained a very, very close and cordial and friendly relationship with. I did business with her. I went to Alexandra, and I asked her if she considered donating two great pieces of Americana that she owned of her father's, the Bill of Rights and the Four Freedom's Prayer, and she agreed to do so. And in the year 2000, the first exhibition of the new millennium, uh, Arthur Schick, Artist for Freedom, uh, opened at the Library of Congress, and they created a website of the exhibit. It's still there online, and that was the first exhibition at, uh, of Americana uh, that took place. And uh, and and actually, I gave a talk, and then and then I've been invited two other times to actually speak at LC over the past uh, number of years. So they've been a real supporter, and they have a very nice collection there. And that's how that took place. Uh, but probably without taking a breath, I can segue into the and in how the exhibit then took place two years later of a totally different nature um, at the United States Holocaust Museum. So, are you ready for this one, Stephanie?
1: I am. <laughs>
0: okay. So, there, while we were preparing the exhibition at uh Library of Congress, Alexandra had said to me, You know, Irv, when the Holocaust Museum was getting, you know, collecting uh, material for its opening, um, which was i guess 7 or 8 or 9 years uh, earlier um you know she told me she had donated 60 drawings or 70 drawings to the library to uh the Holocaust museum in DC and that they had mentioned that they might be willing to have an exhibition there and um but they hadn't so I'm really concerned. It's nice that there's an exhibit at the Library of Congress, but you know, it, it would really be something if we could have something at the Holocaust Museum. So I said, "Alexandra, well, let me see what I can do." I, and uh, I said, "I'll make some calls." And over, I guess I don't know how long this was. Over the next number of months, I, I tried. I called the museum, and I, you know how hard it is sometimes to get a hold of somebody's secretary's secretary, secretary. You know, I just couldn't get through. So, but finally, I did, and. Alexandra flew to D.C. from Boca Raton, Florida, where she was living, and I, again, I flew from the Bay Area, and we met with a group of people in the room, Um, and I knew right there (laughs) that I thought an exhibit would take place there because usually, you know, maybe one person would meet with us, but I think there were four or five people from the Holocaust Museum staff, and I think by the time the second or third sentence was said in this meeting, it was like... There is an exhibition opening at the Holocaust Museum in two thousand and two, and we were thinking about slotting Arthur Schick into that exhibit. I couldn't believe it that here we were and all the stuff you have to go through, and here we are at this meeting. And I was prepared for the speech and Alexander, and I said what we thought we should say. And uh, so what happened was ultimately, then over the next. Couple of years we worked towards this exhibition, and you know, my job was to serve as their consultant and with another fellow, uh, Joseph Ansel, who Joe at the time that. You know, this exhibit was taking place. Had been working on a on a uh, biography of Arthur Schick for over twenty years, and he had used the archives um, that Alexandra, the daughter, had owned because he had was friendly with uh, one of Arthur Schick's granddaughters at one of Alexandra's daughters. And Joe had used that uh, to work towards this book. And Joe was really quite quite knowledgeable about Schick. Really wrote a terrific book called Arthur Schick: Artist, Jew, and Pole. And um, uh, Joe also served as a consultant, and and Stephen Luckert, who was the uh, the curator responsible for this exhibition under the direction, really, of Steve yeah, it was really a wonderful team and a fabulous exhibition. And as I mentioned, it was the first one-person art exhibition that they ever had. And and uh, they published a wonderful book called The Art and Politics of Arthur Schick. And this was the Really, the second book, second illustrated book about Schick and then Joey and so shortly after, I think two years later, uh, his biography of Schick came out. And already now we were starting to compile uh, uh, through Joe's work, through what the museums were doing and my involvement. We began to create a body of literature that people could now start to go to um, to read about Schick. But that's how those exhibits um had taken place and and through this non-profit that I was uh from George Gooch uh, th- that is the Arthur Schick Society I began to raise money for a traveling mission, um that would of reproduction art that would start to go to college campuses throughout the U.S. and I would go to lecture and it would be another way of uh of getting six art artwork out work out there and in 2005 um I traveled this exhibition to three cities in Poland and went to begin to speak about Schick in Poland and to meet people in Łódź and in Krakow and and uh, uh, in Warsaw people in Schick and people there felt empowered and they started to have exhibitions and I would send them over digital images to create reproductions and blah 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 and things started to evolve there and publications started to come out of Poland and all of that was taking place um, on the eve of um, what eventually was to take place in Berlin.
1: All I'm thinking as you're discussing all of this is how pleased I imagine Arthur Schick would have been to know that his work was in the Library of Congress and the Holocaust Museum. But then truly I, I would imagine his mixed emotion perhaps about being in a Berlin museum.
0: Oh yeah, um, for sure. Well, let me tell you how it took place. And then let me tell you how I think Schick would have responded to all of this. Um, well in 2005, while an exhibition was going in Poland, I decided, um, that I, well, I was invited to speak at a couple of the openings. So of course I went to Poland a, a few times. Um, and one of the times, um, I was going. Actually, went with his daughter who traveled with me. So Alexandra went, and and then another time I took a group of people. But um, on that first trip to Poland in 2005, um, I thought, wouldn't it be great? Um, I asked my wife if she wouldn't mind traveling to Berlin for maybe a couple of days before we met up with some people in Poland, and so we did. We went to Berlin for two days and before I went I sent off about 30 emails to institutions in Berlin saying to myself wouldn't it be great if this anti-Nazi artist art was shown in Berlin let's give it a try and so I sent these emails but I didn't get back from any institution um, regarding my you know casual proposal but when we were in Berlin uh, we went over to visit the uh, the IMP building, which is um, you know is, is well well known and world famous, uh, Chinese American architect who had built uh, uh, an extension of the Deutsches Historisches Museum of the German Historical Museum, which uh, I didn't know at the time was the most is really the most important museum in Germany. It's the museum that's uh, really the government's museum that really presents Germany to the world and. So we went over to the Iron paid building to see it, just sort of as an, archi- an architectural wonder. But I went there wanted to go particularly uh, because it, it's a history museum. And on that first day, I I saw somebody smoke a cigarette outside. <laughs> I asked her, I said, do you know who the director of this museum is? And she said, yes, yeah, name's Dr. Hans Anemeyer. Well, the next day, which was the last of our two days in Berlin, uh, We walked over to the museum and my wife went in to look at the exhibits and I walked up to the front desk and I said, I said to the lady there, you're around this rounds, you know, sort of center in the middle of the room, this huge rounds welcoming area. And I asked her if uh, there was anybody in the director's office that I might speak with. He said to you, who are you? And I said, well, my name's Irv Ungar. I'm from California. She said, well, you know, why don't you sit down for 15 minutes? Maybe somebody will talk to you. So I sat down for 15 minutes and maybe one second afterwards, knowing how punctual the Germans are. And so I got a little antsy. So I went to the desk again and I said, would you mind calling again? And I don't think she was too happy about that. But she said, OK, I'll try. And I sat down and a few minutes later, her jaw dropped because the phone rang. And she looked at me and she said, the director is on the phone. He will speak with you. And I said to myself, holy, you know what? You know, here I was like 15 so off the street. And I had a chance to talk to the director of the Deutsches Historisches Museum on the phone. Now, keep in mind, this is probably a man who knows all of German and European history over the last centuries and all of German and European art uh, <laughs> going back centuries. And, and, and the head of this institution, and I have a chance to talk to him, so I said to myself, oh my God, you know, I've only got two sentences to convince to meet with me. So I said these two sentences. Corn up, I'll meet with you. <laughs> so I go up to his office and there he is, you know, the man is probably mid fifties, you know, bushy gray hair, you know, a tweed coat, a tie. And we sit down at this round table and he says, yes, that's what he said. Yes. And I figured, well, geez, I said two sentences to him. He would maybe say more than that. And I said, okay. I said, well, you know, uh, I'd like to show you something. You know, I never go anywhere without carrying Arthur Schick art. And um, so I put the art, took it out of my, uh, whatever I was carrying my backpack and I put it on the table and he looked down at it. And then he looked up like within split seconds. Like if you take your head, you look down and then you look up and he looked at straight in the eye. And he said, this is great art. You know, who is this artist? And I said, well, this is Arthur Schick. And he said to me, has he ever exhibited in Germany? And I said, oh no, sir. You know, uh, he. I mentioned to you on the phone, uh, one of the things I said was that he was the leading anti-Nazi artist in America during world war two. You know, he never would have been exhibited in Germany. And then he said, um, well, wait a minute. And then it turns out that he called in someone, Hans, um, check, actually Hans check who, uh, so, who was the head curator of that museum? And I couldn't believe it, he brought somebody in, and he showed him that art, and they both agreed. Said then turned to me and said, "You know, we should include this art in our next exhibition on Kunst und Propaganda, you know, on art and propaganda." And I go like, "Oh my God, are you kidding me?" And then he then he got me and and he and then he said to me, um, "He says, no, 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 no. We should do an exhibit of your artist by himself." he says, and then I go like, oh, man. And then he says to Hans, you know, take this book off the shelf. And he reaches up to the shelf, that particular book, and puts it on a table. And and he shows me it's really thick. It's a very thick book. And he says, we should do a catalog of your artist in German and English. And in English. And I was like, we've never done a catalog in English. And I was saying, so then I'm sitting back and he goes into his pocket. He pulls something out and I see it's a pocket calendar. And he goes, They flip through the pages and he says, "You know, we should have an exhibit in the fall of 2008. Can you get me a proposal?" I said, "Oh yes, sir." <laughs> I said, and uh, I went back. And within one month, I you know I got the proposal. He wrote back to me, "Dear Mr. Ungar, in the fall of 2008, we will have an exhibition of your artist at the German Historical Museum. I am paid built in 500 square meters, which is like 5,000 square feet." And you know, in August of 2008, that exhibition opened at the Deutsches Historische Museum. I'll never forget it. I mean, I'm sta- I'm sitting there in the sort of the the, the uh, glass enclosed sort of building that's, or uh, um, which is between the German Historical Museum and the IMP building. And there's this opening taking place with Germans, Jews, Poles, uh, Schick's artwork on the background of the of the stage of the podium uh, there are musicians from the polish uh embassy who are playing music of, of from a holocaust survivor and here's Germans, Jews, poles we're all sitting together and schick's art is there and it's like you know this just like unbelievable i mean schick's daughter sitting with me i remember she was re- wearing the most beautiful cobalt blue uh outfit and my wife is there my children have come uh friends who are flown over for this exhibit. It was it was packed. And I'm saying to myself, you know, I spent all these years in Jewish education and as a rabbi, you know, working to build bridges between peoples and countries and understand Jews and the world. The Holocaust and here it is, right in front of me. This is this is happening and taking place. Well, you know, I um after that opening was taking place, the 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 uh, director of the museum, Dr. Ottemeyer, said to me, I think it's a reception, he says, "Er, you know, he says, this is this is something else. Here I am, you know, a uh, German from Berlin, and here you are, a former rabbi from, I maybe said rabbi from um, California. And I, I feel like we're standing together on a bridge. And uh, that bridge is Arthur Schick. And you know, I, I yeah, I never forgot it. I mean, I, I have told this story on numerous occasions because it's so it's so close to me as if it happened. Well, that shows you the power of of uh, of art and and um and there was there's a post there's a there's an epilogue to this actually um, that I think has equal. Power and meaning. It, 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 um, I went back to Berlin. I think I went back in December. Can you believe it? This exhibit opened in August, but I decided to go to Berlin in December, and it was cold. But, but around holiday time, so it's like I'm going to see Berlin. And the reason I went back to Berlin is because we arranged for high school kids, German high school kids, um, we went who would come to this exhibit because I was working on a documentary at the time, and I I raised money to shoot. Some footage of the exhibition, which we did, of the opening, but also I wanted to interview German high school kids and how they responded to Schick and his art. And I had done this for high school kids in in Seattle, Washington, uh, for the first sort of short documentary I made of Arthur Schick's soldier and art, and um, and we went, and I remember. And, and and the requirement was that these kids speak English and, and um so that we could for the interview for the for the movie and that wasn't a problem, but but they they the Germans they w- they were so well prepared for this from the museum and, and they arranged for busloads of kids to come in. In fact there was one from that had come from over three miles, three three hours away from East what had been formerly East Germany. And I guess they were there by 10 in the morning, so they must have been up by 6 or 5 or 5.30, whatever. But they came, and and I remember I was with these high school kids and were, we're standing around this one work of art, um, Samson in the Ghetto. It's of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. Now, keep in mind the chick's mother and brother were were murdered, uh, he, he knew that they were some, murdered somewhere in the ghettos of Europe. Um, it turns out they were murdered at, at the Chelmno Killing Center, but Schick didn't know that. Uh, he thought maybe Maidonic or or another one of the ghettos that they were taken from. But in any case, in this one painting of Samson in the ghetto where the Jews are, you know, uh, revolting against the Germans and only hundreds of Jews against the German army you know, on, on, on the eve of Passover, you know, in, um, uh, 1943, and, and, and Schick had done this, two paintings of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, but on this one, around the border were the words, um, to the German people, sons of Cain, be damned forever and ever, and I'm I'm standing there with the German kids, and I'm reading this inscription, and I said to them afterwards, how does this, how does this make you feel and and two kids i'll never forget this at the same time said to me you know um this does not make us feel um guilty but this does make us feel responsible you know responsible that something like this will never happen again and um you know the thing is, you know do all German kids, high school kids, think like that? No. Do every Polish high school kid think like that? No. How about it? every American kid think about, you know, responsibility? No. Every Jewish kid think about world responsibility? No. But, but you know, we're, what this really means is that art, art has the power to engage, to engage across time, uh, to say something to us in the present day about how we are going to respond. And I think, you know— Dr. Meyer was right, you know, we're standing on this bridge, you know, and this bridge is Arthur Schick.
1: And those kinds of conversations that you were privy to have got to just be a small example of all the people that have gone through these exhibits and the kind of conversations that have been started because of of this work.
0: Absolutely. You know, from from that exhibit in 2008 through all the others that followed that I, you know, um and many of which i was involved in or behind you know to the 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 last one the last of it um, took place really actually i can't believe it's even it's three years have passed but the i was a really really big coup to have an exhibition in new york i always wanted to have it i always felt like until there was a major exhibition in new york you know even though I've you know, been in prominent museums, I felt like, no, you really need to have New York. And finally in two thousand seventeen, the perfect, perfect place in New York for holding an exhibition was at the New York Historical Society. And uh, you know, it's right near where the on on the on Central Park West, right near the Natural Museum. And it's it was that was a very important exhibition. And you know, the art historians who have since covered earlier exhibits and then what they had to say about this exhibition about Schick's prominence in the 1940s and where he stands and what art critics are saying today and, you know, what they said about Schick in his own time, you know, the reviewers would, you know, when Schick was alive, you know, just as our ancestors would, would look back to Hogarth and Goya for images of their day. You know, so too will people two hundred years from now look to Arthur Schick for the images of Hitler and Mussolini and and Hirohito, and it, it will be to Arthur Schick they're going to look. And I, I think so. I, I you know the the problem with Schick was is that yeah, people forgot who he was after he died in nineteen fifty one. I mean, this artist who was so famous when he was alive, and, and nobody was writing about him. They weren't writing about him in Jewish art history. In, in, in Jewish art texts, they weren't right about him in, in world, in pol- when it dealt with political art, World War II. No, there were some places here and there, of course, that mentioned Schickstein, but to the extent that he was really written about and recorded uh, is was very, very disappointing. And, well, that's, you know, that's part of what drove me forward. You know? But anyhow, these exhibitions have played a major role, and accompanying them have been, you know, publication upon publication, and the internet and talks and no, no one's ever going to forget Arthur Schick again. He's here to stay and and to grow. I think exponentially. And, and the value of his art has continued to rise, which is, you know, people pay a lot of attention to it, to art when it also has great value as well. But, but nonetheless, uh, the journey continues.
1: The New York exhibit, I'd read a review in art forum, I believe by an art critic, Donald Cuspit Correct. and he was describing Arthur Schick as being an artist above the notoriety of Pollock or Edward Hopper and that that review was very interesting to me because that exhibit that he was profiling which you had referred to I think the title is Soldier in Art he right. Cuspit was saying that. uh Whereas someone like Hopper had individuals in his paintings shown as perhaps complacent to what was going on around them. Arthur Schick was the exact opposite. All of his characters, if you would call them that, in his work, he was calling them to arms, so to speak. Would you agree with that?
0: Yeah. You know, Schick had this unbelievable moral courage and ability to you know, to speak out against injustice. I mean, right, what Donald Cuspid's review was talking about, you know, that when we look back to the 1940s and we think of artists such as Edward Hopper and Jackson Pollock and Ben Shahn, probably the most important artist in terms of his reaction to his own times was an artist you probably never heard of named Arthur Schick. I mean, that's what, you know, and Cuspid really went to the heart of it. And to write this for Art Forum. I mean to place the historical artist within that context, and to write it that review. I, there was another fabulous review by Jay Ober, Oberman, uh, which was also appeared um, in in a magazine called Tablet. It was fabulous too. So, you know, Schick had the ability to, you know, to, to speak, to speak, you know stand up to power to speak to to speak justice uh what is it called stand up to power whatever the phrase is i forgot the cliche that people use but but he 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 was able to distinguish what was right and what was wrong and it didn't really matter you know what anybody else thought you know he you know this was a man who loved numerous countries and nations and peoples. But, you know, he was always willing to stand up to those that he loved and cared about and call them out where he thought they were, you know, acting unjustly. I mean, for for example, I mean, Schick, Schick loved the Poles. I mean, Schick loved three countries during his lifetime, you know, Poland, the land of his birth, you know, Israel, which he saw as the land of his people, and America, which he saw as the land of his idea. And he was willing to stand up to all three of them. I mean, where he saw injustice taking place. I mean, for example, like with Poland, I mean, he was very close to, you know, many of the leaders in Poland. You know, Szyk was not from, you know, a a shtetl or a small community, grew up in a middle, upper middle class family. and you know, in in an area where there were Polish Catholics and German Protestants and Russian Orthodox. And, you know, he was a Jew and he was sort of very international. And so he was really part of, Real well connected to Polish society, you know. He, he relied on uh, on, on, on uh, Polish nationalist art to contribute to you know his styles of one of his you know which he integrated and synthesized into the overall style that he, styles that he developed. But he was very close to its leaders, to its Paderewskis, you know, to its Sikorskis, uh, to um, you know. The, the many, many of the the, the leaders and intelligentsia of society, and and in fact, uh, when Schick relocated to to England in 1937, uh, where he was there from three years while he supervised the printing of his Passover Haggadah, probably his magnum opus. You know, he is very close to those leaders of this Polish government in exile that had relocated to London, um, and who were responsible together with the British for sending him to the United States in 1940. Um, but when that Polish government, you know, in 1943, you know, changed its attitudes towards, you know, what he thought were towards the Jews and towards, you know, Roosevelt and Churchill in his, in his mind, in his mind, you know, he really called them to task. And um, I'm not sure if that was right or not, but, but, you know, he really felt that, that, you know, because he, he sided, began to side more Soviets, you know, and, and, and that was not good for Polar society to be run by the Soviet Union, but there was a war going on and Soviets were the allies of the West and of America and, and Great Britain, and France. Um and 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 so I think he felt that, you know, that held a better place for the survival of Poland and for the Jews, particularly And so he turned against the Poles uh, at that particular moment. I mean, it's like he loved America, but during the war, when he saw the racism taking place in the American military and segregated units of blacks and and, and whites uh, being segregated, you know, he created artwork, you know, for example, one work of art shows a black GI and a white GI, you know, a white uh, serviceman and a black serviceman walking side by side. Chick's caption in the middle of the war is, you know, I guess probably 1944, I think, um, uh, where the white GI says to the black GI, you know, tell me, what, what would you do with Hitler? You know, if you captured him, what would you do with Hitler? And the black GI said to him, you know, I would make him a Negro and I would drop him somewhere in the U.S.A. And 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 that was Schick's response. You know, what was the worst thing you could do to Hitler was make him a black man in America. That's how bad racism was. That's what calling falling out at the time. And so, you know, while we loved America, what was America doing during World War II? It was fighting racism abroad and what that can lead to, both the Japanese racism towards the Chinese, the, the superiority of the Germans and their Aryan race towards the others, which they saw as subhumans, you know, the Jews, the Gypsies, the, you know, the 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 gates of Europe the the the, the everyone who they saw is I mean and 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 what was America doing you know it was it had its own racism here so Schick while he would, saw himself as FDR's soldier in art as a fighting artist was willing to fight on his on the home front at the same time that he was serving uh you know as a one man army you know against Hitler and his Axis partners, you know, abroad and, and and you know and 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 Chic, you know, loved the Jewish people and he was willing to take them on too because he thought that in America they weren't doing enough to rescue their Jewish brethren in Europe, which is a whole other story. But you know, while Jews were advocating, you know, and Schick was a member of activist Jewish groups who took out ads and 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 illustrated them in the New York Times, New York Post for the rescue of European Jewry. Uh, he felt that maybe the Jewish community was relying too much on Rabbi Stephen S. Wise, you know, and trying to go through the Roosevelt administration that had its anti Semites among it, among it. And so he wasn't pleased that enough wasn't being done. Of course, enough wasn't being done by the United States government to rescue European Jewry, but that's a whole other story. because I mean, there's books written about Roosevelt this and Roosevelt that. But, but Schick himself had a clear, you know, a, 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 had had a clarity of purpose, you know, sort of that he saw and and his his way was to call out what he thought was unjust. I mean, you
1: know, even
0: I mean, I could go on and on and on about this, but I guess I should take a breath and
1: (laughs) and let you ask another question. (laughs) Well, the disparity that I read into the FDR administration and its approach to uh, the Jews and the Holocaust, I wanted to ask you about. There's drawings where, or at least one drawing, where Schick describes himself as FDR's soldier in art. Mm -hmm. And he had that affiliation with uh, Eleanor Roosevelt. Right. And I was curious because I've uh, seen where uh, Schick's involvement with groups like the Bergson group uh, It caused alienation for him, Mm -hmm. and it certainly was a very pivotal and tumultuous time uh, with what the Bergson Group was doing. And so I was wondering what you thought about FDR's soldier in art title that Schick gave himself and how that aligned with FDR's administration and what he saw they were doing.
0: Well, there's no question. I don't think Schick had a problem at all with the idea of you know th- this is a portrait of Roosevelt that appeared on the front cover of a small magazine like the size of a reader's digest i think the magazine was called scope and it was a picture he had done earlier in the war fdr uh, um and a portrait of roosevelt but then he gave it to 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 eleanor roosevelt and that's where he signed it fdr soldier in art. and art that's it that's by the way at the franklin uh, roosevelt uh library um and museum in the Hyde park um today, which they have a very nice collection of Schick's art. But Schick had a war to fight. You know, he he was a soldier. I mean, and Eleanor Roosevelt wrote about him in a few of her columns where she saw him as if he was on the fighting front and and at the forefront. And actually, there's this, I guess, this statement that has floated around. I've not seen it, but I've seen it, it, heard it it where, you know, she said, you know, there's a war to fight, you know, between Hitler and and Mr. Schick. And I know who's going to win that war. I mean, Eleanor Roosevelt saw had great respect for Schick. And I it was a great photograph of her with him where he's you know, creating poster stamps for the British American Ambulance Corps, and he's given them to Eleanor Roosevelt because FDR was a stamp collector. And but she, but he, he saw himself as a, a fighting artist. He had a war to fight, so I don't, I don't think Schick had any problem with that. That was clear, and he wasn't going to back down from that. Um, and 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 but when it came to the 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 what the administration was not doing enough, Schick. To rescue you, European Jews, and Berkson Group as an activist group, you know, who for which you know they took out these newspaper ads that were written by Ben Hecht, one of the leading playwrights uh, in Hollywood, one of the highest paid in its early days, and and you know, uh, you know, playwright for *Gone with the Wind*, although I don't think you'd see his name there much, or *Scarface*, and he, you know, and a reporter and writer and 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 you know he would write all the the, the text for the ads for the burson group and shit was their one man art department he would illustrate all of them so he was heavily involved um with the nature and i think uh he just realized he needed to motivate americans and motivate all Americans. At a time, it was very difficult for America. I mean, to take on the America First movement, which Schick did, you know, to take on its proponents of Charles Lindbergh and General and Senator Gerald Nye, and, and to call out America for not doing enough to get involved in the war in the first place, and then to continue to follow it through with his activism uh, uh, with uh, Peter Berkson and his various committees of, you know, uh, Uh, you know, uh, the Committee for a Jewish Army of stateless and Palestinian Jews to fight with the allies, which was rejected. And, you know, uh, until finally, one, they were able to bring about uh, at least a war refugee board, or at least be influential in the formation in 1944, a war refugee board that was responsible for, you know, credited for saving about 200,000 lives, although people still debate, well, did the Berkshire, boys in that group actually uh, do that. But Schick, I don't think he had a problem with, with. I mean, who knows the intricacies exactly of who's preventing what, you know, who's who really is responsible at that time. On hindsight, we could really pinpoint, you know, who in the State Department or who in whichever department wasn't doing enough. I mean, we can, and that's why all the volumes have been written. But, you know, Schick's in the middle of it. So he's got a war to fight. He's got Jews to rescue. He's got the enemy to defeat. So I, I, it's hard to say, you know I I don't think we can say that he felt badly because he had penned his name as FDR's soldier and I think he saw that way to the end. I mean he always saw he saw himself as a fighting artist when he first before he came to America it, you know, at the end of nineteen forty. He was in Canada for for three months and when he filled out his papers of you know immigration papers to Canada, they asked him what he, you know you have to ask you know what do you do for a living? And he didn't just write down artist, he wrote down fighting artist. That's what he does. So he was going to fight there to the end. He didn't care what anybody else thought.
1: With that same idea, uh, fast forwarding a few years to McCarthyism, the 1951 Thomas Jefferson's oath, uh, would you describe that? And would you uh, also speak to how you think, his art, like the Thomas Jefferson oath and the anti-lynching drawings that he did, how mm-hmm. that may have or may not have had any relationship with the un-American committee that that was fingering him?
0: Sure. Well, first, let me say Schick loved the American president, particularly Washington, Lincoln, and Jefferson, and he illustrated them in, in their, his art. I mean, he, he did 38 paintings of Washington and the American Revolution, they were actually purchased by the president of Poland and given to FDR as a gift in 1935 to create, you know, close relations between Poland and America on the eve of World War II. And, and, uh, in fact, they were hanging in the White House when Roosevelt delivered it in January of 1941, his famous Four freedom speech. So he loved Washington and Lincoln. He did a billboard of Lincoln. that was in Times Square, you know, seventh Avenue and 42nd street that was over a, store Needix, where you could get, you know, hard soda and hot dogs and go there and see six art of Lincoln up there. And and with Jefferson, you know, I, you you asked me a question, I use it to answer other things too, so I hope your audience doesn't mind who's listening. But to, to get to your Jefferson piece, um, yeah, that he that was uh Jefferson had written to Dr. Benjamin Rush, I think around eighteen hundred a statement, I've sworn upon the altar of God, uh, eternal hostility against every form of tyranny over the mind of man. And Schick illuminated that in 1951. And I, I think that, you know, that statement probably was Schick's mantra from the very beginning. I've sworn upon the altar of God, you know, eternal hostility against every form of tyranny, God, over the mind of man. You know, and so, you know, at that time, this is, again, the last year of his life, 51, when he illustrates this, illuminate. And actually yeah, did it more than once. I think he did it twice. And no, I, no, I don't think he did uh, illuminate that twice. But um, in 51, you know, several things are going on. You know, the war has ended at 45. Schicks turns his attention to several issues, you know, creating his greatest Americana. Um, you know, creating artwork to help bring about the creation of the state of Israel and also returning to book uh, illustration, Um, you know, illustrating close to 30 books. But, you know, uh, in 1949, uh, Schick, the House on american Activities, uh, issued a pamphlet in which Schick was named... uh, to be a subversive, I think, in eight organizations, eight or nine, you know, with Albert Einstein, with W.E. Du Bois, with, you know, famous black actors, with, you know, Frank Lloyd Wright. I I mean, you know, people who had made people and and Schick was put in in this group. I mean, he was very active, you know. I mean, after all, you know, he was a political artist. Uh, He lived in Manhattan. Uh, you know, during the war years where people afterwards would come to the people who were in the theater, you know, the people would hang out with him. They had ideas, of society, and he was very active. Um, and then he moved up to New Canaan, Connecticut, you know, in the late you know, forty-six, But he... At this time, he's named it. And, and what's incredible about this is, is that in 1949, 1950, 51, Schick is creating his greatest Americana. I mean, creating the Declaration of Independence, the Bill of Rights, and Four Freedoms. And so that's one of the ways in which he responded to this was creating even great his great Americana. And then he, you know, then he would create artwork to attack McCarthyism itself. You know, I think there's one work of art where two men are talking, and one's got a newspaper under his arms, and a third man is walking. And I, I forgot the exact words that Chick's caption says, but uh, you know, uh, you know, it must be you know, sort of a communist. You know, his 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 uh, you know his his blood is red, and his heart is left of center. Come to think of it, I guess we're all in trouble. You know, something like that. So you know, he would respond to McCarthy, and and he would attack. You know. It, Would would go after it. It would be his response. What what, uh, he got, you know, as a result of this. This was a man, you know, who devoted his life to America. I mean, he saw it as the land of his ideals. And and to be investigated, he was never called. And uh, Judge uh, Simon Rifkin had written uh, was involved in Schick's sort of semi-defense. I mean, I don't think he said he was ever called. He really needed a defense. But, you know, his son, George, had written a letter. His father was never a communist. I mean, this man embraced freedom. I mean, and, and so to be investigated and get three heart attacks and the third one killed him in 1951. I mean, Schick was only 57 when he died. But, you know, I can only imagine how brokenhearted he was by virtue of this, uh, this investigation uh, you know, after all, I guess Jefferson's statement stood out even more about the tyranny over the mind of man. Um, but that was the that was the end of Schick. And then after that, you know, uh, he lost uh, at the time he was investigating, lost some commissions. But he, he 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 wouldn't know it because of still how how prolific he was to so the very end. He was still drawing for the Jews of of the newly created state of Israel. He was still creating artwork. I think one of his great works in 1949, I think maybe you're referring to, I didn't mention here in the, yet, was that um, he had, did this uh, black and white uh, small image. You know, His artwork is only a few inches tall. It's only like five by seven inches or nine by 11, which would be a large piece. But there's a black soldier... Uh, he's come back from World War II. He's a World War II hero, and we know he's a World War II hero because he's wearing a purple heart on his chest, and he's, he also has a cross neck and he's forced to kneel uh, in this drawing, and his, his arms are tied with a rope behind his back, and standing over his shoulder are two Ku Klux Klansmen looking on. And Chick's caption is, uh, Father, do not forgive them for They know what they do, and this is a quote which Schick has sort of turned on its head from the book of Luke. Um, do not forgive them, for they know what they do. You know, and there he goes on to talk about each Negro lynching is a stab in the back, it's a disaster for America and its fight and for its struggle for democracy. It's a, a part I'm sort of paraphrasing another caption that he wrote, you know, on the piece. But this work was published in the Sunday Compass in New York in a newspaper. Um and that would be the kind of artwork that he would create, that this idea that he was you know willing to take a stand on what he saw was was, was unjust and to and to you know put you know, you know, they take the express you know, the pen is mightier than the sword, you know. I mean, here it's the pen and fixed brush, right? And, you know, the idea that he would one of his books he entitled Ink and Blood, it was sort of a response to the German idea of blood and iron. You know, that the the the, the ink would be more powerful, not in you know, in, in the in a text, but in an illumination of a text or an illustration, you know that he was able to accomplish it. But this was Arthur Schick. You know, I, I don't know how much longer we're going to talk, but I, I might as well say it right now. Um, um, you know, I, I first came to Schick because of his, you know, the brilliant colors that always jumped out at me. And then then it was really the messages and his art, you know, art against bigotry and racism and intolerance, art for justice and for freedom. I mean, he raised money for the Chinese and the Czechs and the Poles and the Greeks. And was from Australia, New Zealand during the war. I mean, his art was really had these messages that was really sort of an advocate. You know, as I mentioned earlier, for for humanity and uh, you know, as a Jew who cared, as I said, about his people and about the welfare and well being of you know of those around him, where he thought that injustice was was making its ugly head felt. You know, and I, so you know, I was attracted first to his art because of the colors. It was then I was I focused so much on the messages in his art, but you know, then I returned to the genius of the art itself. You know, just just to be able to behold its great beauty and intricacy and and the craftsmanship and the detail. Then I realized something else, which really was the the journey that I've been on, and, and that was that behind the great art and behind the great messages stands arthur schick the great man you know that's that's sort of what i've come to see you know i mean this man was heroic in his own day but you know we need heroes in our own day and why not look to people who are no longer alive but who are really alive because of the kind of people they are because the way they thought the way they articulated and presented life you know with a with a message with purpose you know with a a purpose that was not selfish, but a purpose that was out there for the benefit of of why we're here, you know, the glory of life. I mean, and Shakespeare's the beauty of his art, and, the, and so then the paradox of the beauty, but dealing with ugly matters, you know, as well, but doing it in a beautiful sense. I mean, you know, I like to say, I don't know what a genius is, you know, I don't know how to describe someone as a genius, and maybe our IQ is so high, or they're seen as a prodigy as a child, but you know the the way this world man functioned in his own lifetime and and was and was seen in that way you know and, and was appreciated and, you know and here we are you know seventy years after his death, right and here I am talking to you on this podcast about him with the kind of well, I guess it's a reverence in a way I just you know. It just just makes us pause because, but but if for those listening, for well, you are listening and you you've stuck it out so far. I mean, really, uh, I you know I, I wrote a book in 2017 and it, it, it I think it was darn good. It's called Arthur Schick's Soldier in Art. Well, happily, other people did too because it won the National Jewish Book Award in 2017 and had great essays and great art in it. So you know, if you among the many things to. To pursue and to look at out there, and but I I'd, I'd highly recommend the book. It's a good one. I've got lots of copies here.
1: <laughs> <laughs> the The thing about Arthur Schick, what stands out to me is that he did not have any hesitation touching the pulse of what he saw as a problem, and using symbols and very thoughtful, witty words and. Context for everything that he did, that it was so well laid out to take a message that was using uh, 16th century uh, artistic methods to speak to, like you said, the lynching issues in the U.S. or the Nazi uprising that was overtaking his people in Poland. And one story that I'd heard you mention was a gentleman, I think his name was Mr. Horowitz, who gave you insight into uh, Schick's use of swastikas that either were censored or self-censored. I wondered if you would speak to that for uh, a moment. And I believe that was in the Schick's version of the Haggadah.
0: That's right. So I mentioned the Haggadah earlier. By the way, remind me to also mention about his painting of the visual history of the United States, if I forget, okay? But let me go. So between 1934 and 19—you know, in 19—to to tell the story about the swastikas in Arthur Schick's Passover Haggadah in a religious book, I need to go back just a bit to um, the fact that 1933, when Hitler came to power, invited by the United States government as a single Jew from Poland to come to America. Well, that's pretty extraordinary. The reason he was invited was to exhibit works on freedom, which is also fascinating, and the idea that they would be exhibited at the Library of Congress. So a Jew from Poland in 1933, when Hitler comes to power, is invited, come to America, show America works about freedom, which he did. And while he was here for seven months, he was decorated by the American government. He was given the George Washington Bicentennial Medal by the United States for his works on freedom. Um, this is already after he'd been decorated by Poland and by France as an advocate for humanity and what Schick had done. Um, so he had three medals, which he wore proudly. But after he was here in America for the seven months, he went back to Poland and began to create the great book of freedom in Jewish tradition that. Pass over Haggadah, tell the story of the ancient Exodus, the Israelites from Egypt, but for Schick saw it as a story of his own time. That is, he saw Hitler as the new Pharaoh and the Nazis as sort of the new Egyptians who had come to annihilate his people in mid-1930s Europe. Now you need to remember that the Nuremberg laws are passed in nineteen the racist Nuremberg laws are passed in nineteen thirty-five. And Schick is working on his Haggadah between nineteen thirty-four and nineteen thirty-six. And here, in addition to seeing the Nazis as the new Egyptians, he sees the need for Jews to be heroic and to stand up to what's going on in Europe. So, this is what makes his Haggadah, among 5,000 different printed editions or 6,000, I don't know how many are around today, different than any other. It's in the context of the period and how Sheikh moves history to fit the events that are unfolding in his own day. And so, in order to paint these, uh, make the to point out what's unfolding in Europe, he paints swastikas on the Egyptians in his uh, Haggadah narrative and the art. And uh, but before publication in 1940, he actually paints over them. Uh, whether it was censorship by the British government as to new publications coming out at that time, and not wanting to ruffle the feathers of the uh, <laughs> of the Germans, I don't know. You know. The the Chamberlain did a good job for the British in in appeasement, but nonetheless, whether it was Schick's publishers or who it was, he painted over those swastikas prior to publication, so we didn't know that they existed. Um, I went to Israel sometime, I don't remember what year it was, probably in the 19, uh, maybe around the year 2000, uh, somewhere around there, I'm not sure. And I met a, a man whose father, had been a sponsor of a consortium, uh, the sponsor of Arthur Schick's Art in Poland, in Lviv, in although Schick lived in Ludge. And this young boy who I met was, when I met him, he was Mr. Horowitz in his 80s, I guess, or maybe late 70s, I don't know. I'm in my 70s now, so but that was old to me at the time. Anyhow, I met him in uh, Tel Aviv, and he told me that when he was a young boy, his Schick had come to his father's house and had shown his father and a group of men, these drawings that he had done paintings he had done of the Haggadah. And that's when he saw these swastikas. So now fast forward these decades, he told me the story. And so that when there was an exhibit, when the exhibit was opening at the United States Holocaust museum, and they had these works of art um, in their con- in their lab, and they looked at it under layers of paint, I told them the story, they discovered the swastikas. And so I've written about that and published about that and telling that story. And, uh, it's just one of the ways in which chick used symbolism to, uh, to, to capture uh, you know the the whole meaning of what what might be unfolding you know, around him and how people might react to the to the events of the day
1: and he also did a work like ride of the Valkyries that shows yeah. sort of like there's like a an emphasis on the strength of this Forbidable enemy that they shouldn't Underestimate?
0: You should not, right I mean, Schick did a whole series of the Nibelungen ring and and Wagner and You know, it's just genius Upon genius and In fact, I'm working with a professor from Yale now About publishing an essay on Wagner and his anti-Semitism And the Nibelungen Drawings of Warburg's Porges Knight And uh, You know, uh, well, Warburg's Porges Knight not really But Valhalla and and of the Nibelungs and so on that he's working on. Um, uh, So those are really very, very powerful pieces. Very intricate. You know, you you could look at Bosch or you could look at uh, Durer and you could look at those woodcuts and you will see you will you will look at Schick and you will go like oh my god what does he how does he do this stuff you know I, you, how does he create this I mean and and you mentioned also about Renaissance art too I mean here we're talking about German woodcuts but you know Schick you know Schick applied the illumination of the 16th century illuminators of, you know whether it was. Of, France or Italy, you know, and he, he he applied that to caricature and cartoon. I mean, that that's, that that's was, I thought we haven't talked about that much, but, you know, you, you, you can't confuse Arthur Schick with any other artist of any particular period in terms of what he was able to do. Once you see his art, you're never going to confuse him with anyone else, but he, he mastered that. And if you look at the images, to get back to the Hagada, for example, for example, Uh, Art historian James Kettlewell has written about Schick uh, in great detail. In fact, he writes an essay in my book, Arthur Soldier and Art, referenced earlier, in which he compares, you know, several of the, um, that no one took form and meaning, um, uh, the level that Schick did, and the only other comparison in art history he could think of was Michelangelo's you know, Sistine Chapel. Now, I know people listening to this might think, oh, this Ungar, he's a little bit off the wall bringing in Michelangelo. Well, go look at the Haggadah. You, you, you look at the images, I, and I've been in the Sistine Chapel on a couple of occasions, and you look at the Haggadah, and he, he sees, you know, his Hagadas. if that's Schick's you know, Sistine Chapel. I mean, uh, you think about, and by the way, Schick knew the artwork of Da Vinci and Michelangelo, and you'll see references in his Haggadah. You know, certainly knew the Twilight and Dawn of of Michelangelo. He certainly knew knew the Last Supper of Da Vinci, and you'll see images that reference that in his creation. So this was a man who, you know, he loved art and he loved history, and he knew art and he knew history, and he combined them. I mean you, you name a country and I will tell you or name a person in history I I, I will probably be able to relate some more. I mean if you told me about Chick knows the history of Liberia I'd say yeah he did a whole series of stamps dealing with Liberia. Yeah, well how about Newfoundland? Well yeah, Chick did a history of Newfoundland or Nova Scotia or you're telling me about the American? Yes. You, you, or you ask me about the revolution and he'll I'll show you illustrations of a black man who Chick celebrated for his fight for freedom when a time when blacks weren't ought to be in Washington's army had injured and injured in Battle of Concord and the Red Cross, the Israeli Red Cross, the bundles for Britain. I don't know. I could I, I just just rattle off, you know, what did Chick not know? What was he not aware of? Who did he not come in contact with?
1: And I found interesting too, sort of in the realm of the Haggadah because it uh it, it it brings the uh Hitler as the pharaoh concept mm-hmm. to life mm-hmm. uh mm-hmm. what I'd found interesting was his book of Esther illuminations mm-hmm. that changed mm-hmm. over 25 years and right. how they're so very different and uh his 1925 version I believe compared with yes. his later 1950 version that does, right. again, incorporate uh, the Nazi uh, swastikas. At that point, he's not being censored. So would you uh, talk a bit about that?
0: Sure. You've actually done your homework, <laughs> really. In 1925, he illustrated the Book of Esther in the Bi- from the Bible for the first time. It was published in Paris, where he lived for from 1921 to 33. Uh, by the way, everybody knew him in Paris, and if Woody Allen did his movie again, I know what know, was his movie called Midnight in Paris or something? I'm not sure. It would have done well to include Schick, because Schick would have known all these people. They would have known him. But anyhow, in Paris, yeah, no, I mean, Schick was like, everybody knew him. I mean, he used to entertain people at his home. I had his diary from 1927, so I know what was going on every day of his life in 1927. It's fascinating. And he wrote it in beautiful Russian. by the way um anyhow in 1925 you know that illustrated version of esther is really different as you mentioned uh, from his 1950 illustrated book you know it was more persian miniature type thing i don't know uh from the 20s and very different in not only style but its emphasis but in 1950 you know the wicked Haman who wanted to destroy the jews um is seen hanging. There are several illustrations of him. One of them, he's hanging from the gallows, and paint swastika swastikas on this wicked Haman, who is a you know figure, whether historical or not. But the narrative goes back, you know, I guess twenty four hundred years or something like that, to Persia, um, and uh, the wicked king, uh, not the wicked king, the king who was influenced by the wicked Haman, Ahasuerus. Uh to kill the Jews by Haman because didn't like them. You know, Mordecai the Jew wouldn't bow down to him, nor so Esther appears before the king and says, you know, this is my people too. And so the king, you know, allows them to defend themselves to, and Haman is hung on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai and the other Jews. And when Schick draws his own self-portrait, there, eating, you know, a piece of pastry called a hamantash, and he's looking up at Haman, hanging on a gallows with swastikas all over him. And, you know, for Schick, you know, evil thought, evil people, those things endure. And, you know, Jewish legend has it that, you know, from Amalek in the Bible, who was the enemy of Israel in the wilderness, from this enemy, you know, descended, you know, people like Haman, Hitler. And others, and and that this, you know, from the beginning it was, you know, without becoming too religious and going too 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 far afield, you know, you have the tree of knowledge of good and evil, evil, it, and and so the eternal thought, you know, that, that the swastika. Well, there's a whole school of thought about the swastika and its origins, and I'm very familiar with that. But but symbolically, it stands out, it, it, and. Schick used it, and that book was published, and we do see the swastikas there, and and if you look carefully, his book of Job, there is an instance where you can see the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans are German-faced, had their features of German and and Japanese figures there, and there is a swastika or two to be seen under a, uh, that still remains under a microscope, you can still see them, so he, he did that in his illustrations
1: interesting point also about his work comparing it with other artists of his day who were addressing similar issues uh Chagall's white crucifixion yes uh i'd read that it had been uh included in a discussion by a catholic circle mm-hmm. uh with de profundis uh-huh. to discuss Responsibility during the Holocaust, yeah. and I was curious if you knew about the um, the comparison of the two. Yeah. If you'd seen discussions of those specific ones being compared, and what you thought. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I, I actually co-authored an article. I think it appeared in Moment magazine that dealt with you know Nostra Tate and the 50th anniversary of the Church's declaration that you know, Jews are not responsible for the killing of Jesus and the acceptance of more well, widely of other religions and in the, the way the church, you know, views them. And, you know, one of its responses to that was to create Holocaust centers, you know, in various Jewish uh, Catholic and Jesuit institutions, higher learning in America. But Chick, we, so we had published this article, um, I wrote it with Alice and Claire Chang, a brilliant uh, thinker, writer. Um, and um in this, in something else which I became very interested in i there's a comparison that art did there and and I think may have taken it in another direction also in which I was responding to something of both uh mark Chagall and Picasso with regard to arthur Schick's great painting of de profundis and and i i i I've looked at comparing all three of them together, and I I know you uh, have a talk about Guernica. I think in one of your podcasts. Um, So the way I I see that in answering your question is, is that you know Picasso created Guernica in 1937 in response to the the bombing, German bombing of that Spanish city, and um, and a year later. Uh, Chagall uh, painted "White Crucifixion," which shows, um, you know, in response to uh, to Kristallnacht, you know, the 1938 November, the burning of Jewish synagogues and houses, and Jews being taken off to to camps. Um, and in this painting, uh, Chagall. Which he also says he did in response to Picasso's Guernica. That's another issue. Uh, you know, two out of falling out he's like maybe their egos. I'm not sure what it was, but in it, created white crucifixion in response uh, into to to um, Kristallnacht, uh, the night of the broken glass, in which he has a burning synagogue, a burning house, a Jew fleeing with a Torah scroll, and in the center is a huge painting of Jesus on the cross. This is a painting that's you know has certain controversy among Jews and Christians, but it's a great work of art. In fact, it's I think Pope Francis's most favorite work of art. And these are two works that respond to tragedy. And uh, and Schick created his great work of De Profundis in response uh, to devastation and to murder and to tragedy. And this De Profundis shows lifeless and dying Jews you know, almost pointing up to a scroll. It has this title De Profundis, which is based on psalm, psalm 130. I think it's a it's 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 a psalm that's important to both Jews and Christians in their respective liturgies. You know, it means out of the depths. You know, out of the depths, all to you, O oh Lord. What what could be more calling out from out of the depths of despair and death and lifeless and dying Jews? But with them, chick paints Jesus. Holding the, the Ten Commandments, as if to say, you know, were Jews Jesus alive in the nineteen forties, he too would have been killed with his brothers and sisters as a Jew. And uh all three of these paintings of Picasso's Guernica and uh Chigal's White Crucifixion and, and Schick's deep performance, they all document human tragedy. But Schick's artwork does something the other two do, do not do. And that is is that in this drawing, you know which is very small, you know, Picasso's Guernica I think is like 25 feet long by 11 feet tall, it's huge I mean, Schick's deeper footage isn't even 25 inches by 11 inches it's even smaller than that and, you know, if it was as big as Picasso's Guernica, you know, everyone would know who Schick is, you know, and that's another problem because this works are really small, but what Schick does in this drawing that the other two don't do is he ha- adds the statement, Cain where is Abel thy brother? and this is from the Bible from the very beginning, you know, when the first two children, the first two brothers, there's already a murder in the Bible. And, you know, if we believe that in God, or you believe in the idea that God is omnipotent and and omnipresent and is all-knowing, God wouldn't have to ask this question of Cain, where is Abel like brother? God would know. So this is a question for Cain, and what's the question? The question is, not where is he located, but are you willing to accept responsibility for what you've done? Are you willing to, to, to accept this as, 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 as being what you've created? And so what Chick is really saying is he's, he's not only looking to document human tragedy. He's looking for accountability. Who is responsible for this tragedy? And, and by the way, I believe this is the single most important Holocaust work of art that Chick did. On paper, check always work on paper. I not only believe it's his most important work of art, but I think this is the single most important work done by the Holocaust during the Holocaust and on the Holocaust. By any, I mean, De Profundis is really, really a work for all time. In any case, this work is discussed widely and it's reproduced widely. And I, I've come to the conclusion and probably more impact than any work of art to, to measure impact. You know, my one say was, how many people did it rescue? Well, that's not really how you can measure something. This was being discussed. Ministers were talking about it. Schick went to discussions. But, you know, every work of art that Schick created, he created for the purpose of reproduction. And the question is, where was this first reproduced? Then it was reproduced, I think, in February of 1943 in a Chicago Sun full page you know, if you look at a huge newspaper, it's like its top half of the page is this artwork. I think it's even bigger than the original artwork itself. And the question is, how does a work like that get into the newspaper? You know, and people say they didn't know about what was going on during the war and so on. Well, that's nonsense. This work is full page in 1943 in the Chicago Sun. A chick was syndicated for the Sun and the New York Post uh, prominently and others. But the question is, how did it get there? Well, it wasn't put there because the newspaper owner decided it should be there or the editor, and it wasn't didn't appear there because of any Jewish group that paid for it. It was there because of a, a Christian group that paid for this work of art to be in the newspaper. And who was this Christi, Christian group? It was called the Textbook Commission, which was part of the Protestant movement. And how do we know it? Because below the ad, it says who they are, and there's text there, and what does it say in this text? And you know what it says in the text? It says that because of the anti-Semitic statements that we've had in our textbooks through the dec- through the through the decades, and the seeds of that we've sown in Christian civilization of anti-Semitism, you know, this work that we've created is not only anti—that that what we have done through the centuries that. You can see in this artwork that we're not only are we responsible because of the if we have to set, accept responsibility for anti Semitism, and because it's not only anti Semitic, it's not only anti American, but it's anti Christian itself. And that's how Schick's art was used De Profundis, De Profundis, out of the depths, I call to you, O oh Lord.
1: That brings me to a point that you mentioned to me before we started the call about uh, a book that uh, started to be written, I believe, around the same time you started to discover Shik by a Japanese historian that he wanted to use as a mirror for the Japanese to see themselves today. Would you uh, tell us what you know about that?
0: Yeah. um, In getting ready for the exhibit at the Holocaust Museum that opened in 2002, I had met, I don't know, a year or two or three, four, maybe, I don't know. I had known about a a, a Japanese man named Rinjiro Sode, and Sode was a historian. uh, He also studied at UCLA, but he was a historian at the University in, um, in Japan, Tokyo, Osai. Uh, university, and um, he became very interested in Arthur Schick. In fact, he started to keep a book about Arthur, and of course with Japan and rebuilding Japan, and so on. And he became very interested um, in, I think he saw Schick's art in at the Martin Summers Gallery in New York, probably in the late 70s, and started to buy Arthur Schick art that dealt with the Japanese and started to collect it. And became so interested, he decided. And the reason he was doing that is because he felt that the leaders of Japan had brought Japan into the war, and were responsibility were responsible for, you know, for all the for the destruction, and particularly Hirohito and and it, and Tojo and its leaders. And so he collected Arthur Schick artwork because he thought it was important for the Japanese to see Schick's artwork as a mirror to begin to come to terms today, in his own day, with their atrocities during World War II. Unlike the Germans, who have. And so he decided he was going to write a book in Japanese for the Japanese people, and have art, illustrated chick art throughout. And I think, I think it was in two thousand and four. I'm not exactly sure that this book was published. And uh, uh, he really thought it was re- that chic really was to be looked at is to 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 eat most would be the the best vehicle and he was he did this really he was quite afraid because he knew that there was still reverence for the emperor in japan and really was was afraid really he used to tell me for his own life that if he should go ahead and publish this book but i think he had a little bit of six moral courage in him and and he did and he i i i i i think uh a debt of gratitude is owed to him and i and while i'm thinking about it it's like to him and to Joseph Ansel and to Stephen Heller, who for many years was the art editor of New York Times um, Book Review, and, and and people like that, upon whose shoulders I have to also stand. You know, I know it's expression that's used many times, but nobody comes to anything alone. You sort of rely upon these different voices and their different perspectives, and and so day in Japan is another one of those voices, another one of those pers- perspectives, another person who encouraged to speak up and and to see. And to see really exactly what Schicks art was, almost in a blink, just as Dr. Ottomeyer did uh in uh in Berlin when he, in a flash, he said, "Oh, this artist we've got to exhibit him you know I just there are people like that you know that's 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 the world of dialogue that Schick has opened up i mean i it leads just to to better better, better things."
1: An interesting point also that you brought up in relation to the Japanese was that they had actually used his art in leaflets that they dropped during the war.
0: Yeah, you know, as I mentioned earlier, everyone knew who Schick was. And, you know, of course, when Schick came to Canada and then to the United States, I had two of the newspaper clippings that said, you know, Hitler had put a personal price tag on Schick's head because of the power of his art. You know, whether that's true or not, I really don't know. Um, And I don't think that we ever found out. Uh, when we were doing research for the, for the for the exhibit at the German Historical Museum, um, But it meant that his art was known, that people would write about it in that context, and 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 also the the Japanese. Um, I had a, a newspaper clipping that showed that there was this really um, very scary image that Chick had done of the Japanese as the aggressors, that was very frightening to a. To America, that you should realize what that, what a powerful enemy this is, and and uh, um, and 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 this newspaper clip that I had showed that the Japanese had taken this work of art that Shik had done of them and used it as a flyer to drop from some of their planes to frighten American uh, soldiers during the war. So obviously the Japanese were aware of his art as well, to the extent that, you know, America obviously totally embraced him as soon as he got here, even before he arrived here, they were prepared to to use his art on behalf of their, their war efforts. Um, so, but yeah, you know, he, he I mean, certainly in, in, and then France's art was certainly known. I mean, he did a lot of work attacking the Vichy French as well. So everyone knew who he was. And he was celebrated.
1: Celebrated, absolutely, and rightly so. <laughs> <laughs> the visual history of the U.S. was something that uh, I wanted you to circle back to, you'd mentioned before.
0: Yeah. You know, Schick received this commission by a Canadian stamp dealer, Casimir Bolesky, in the 1945 to create visual histories of various nations in the world so that these, he could re- reproduce these as lithographs and as they'd be as i mentioned earlier be frontispieces and stamp albums the first one he did was the visual history of the united states and it was totally up to schick to decide what symbols he would put in this in this illuminated manuscript packed full of images uh, uh, work of art and you know in it you know, it has the accomplishments of American industry. It has the, it has the uh, Hoover Dam. It has the, you know, steamship. It has the airplane. It has um, its great cities to celebrate. You know, San Francisco and New York are in these vignettes around the border, and also around the border, he has images of the uh, the soldiers who fought during World War II, the Navy. Uh, uh, someone from the Navy, I think, and someone from the Army. And, and, and these are white fellows, you know, who fought. But you know what's interesting? He also saves the same amount of space in these rondels and these round circular images for the Native American and for the Black American. And I found this has always been fascinating to me. In 1945, you have this immigrant who comes to America, who paints a portrait the fabric of America, and in 1945, this Polish Jew embraces and includes, and gives the same amount of space to the black man and the and, and 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 the Native American Indian. And you know, I, I've used it. I've looked at it several times. And I, if I, you know, you take this into a high school classroom, and you say to the high school kids, you know, if you had if you had to paint a portrait of America, what would you include in it now? You know, what, what what would you say about america and this was Schick's view in nineteen forty five to be all inclusive it was it was always his embrace of the total span of what was involved you know and 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 people will say, well, you know maybe maybe it doesn't have a woman maybe there's a woman missing, but you know he you know Schick embraced women in various book works of art, whether fighting in the Warsaw ghetto or the first or the first illustration of you know frances perkins is the first woman appointed teddy cabinet position by by uh by fdr and you know he did her portrait and appeared in uh i think it was in 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 uh fortune magazine i think it was in fortune not forbes in fortune magazine and his his women of the book the biblical books of ruth and esther and and so he did embrace women but i get back to the to the, the this visual history of the united states i mean that was I mean, that was art that wasn't being done in general, you know, celebrating the, the, the role of the black man. Well, chick did that as early as 1930 when he was in Paris and he did images of the American Revolution and he included the black man and it celebrated his role in, in American freedom as well. So, yep, that was the, the, the visual history of the United States.
1: You may have uh, addressed this earlier, but I want to make sure you'd mentioned that you were going to discuss what you thought Schick would have thought of the German State Museum show. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, I, I think what he would have thought of it, that is what I asked his daughter, Alexandra, or that is what she may have raised as we sat there together. And she told me that her father, who actually who hated Germany, and he I mean he, he would travel on trains right here, he never get off in Germany, as she would tell me. And um but his images of the militarism of Bismarck and Wilkes Wilhelm and and throughout history and the way he you know in Valhalla, how he puts swastikas all these historical German figures and so how he hated Germany. But when we talked about this exhibit, she said, you know, my father would love the idea. And as I mentioned, she went with me to Germany. You know, I remember we walked back to our hotel and, and uh, you know. Uh, afterwards and it was this lot of people who were standing in front of this hotel she goes, geez, the exhibit opened I guess maybe they're here to see me well it turns out that it was actually Madonna was staying in the same hotel that we were in when the show was opening and you know what the next day, and I forgot the name of the German paper, but the next day there was a picture of Madonna on the front cover of this mag of uh, newspaper, and there was a picture of Arthur Schick's daughter right next to Madonna at the exhibition. And I said to Alexandra, "Oh, uh, this is, um, I have this, uh, this newspaper, uh, front cover here. And, uh, you know, Madonna was dressed in all black and she was in a very uh, sensual pose. I won't go that far, but you know, whether or not you know, the people really were at that hotel. <laughs> Even Donna or six daughter. Well the newspaper gave them well, gave the donna more space. But the but the but I would say that the, the, the German exhibition had long lasting influence. In fact, after that exhibit was over, they handed me a a binder that must have been three or four inches thick of all the press that had taken place in Germany around this exhibit. You know, it did something you know, the German high school kids had mentioned to me, you know, German high school kids, you know, from the kindergarten on up through high school are educated about the Holocaust to to the extent that maybe a lot of it's coming out their ears. I don't know, but that's what one of the German kids told me. He says, but this art, and as the teachers agreed, who accompanied them, and the kids who I spoke to, they loved this exhibition. They they loved it because, you know, kids like also caricature and cartoon and graphic art and stuff like that. They really saw a new dimension. And and the Germans did, too. They they felt that this exhibit, you know, they have a term which is called Vergangenheit Beveltegung. I hope I'm saying it correctly, which means coming to terms with their, pa- with their past. And they felt that this that the Schick exhibit had actually done something that other, all other things had not done, which is what Meyer saw from the beginning. To understand the propaganda that was being used against this propaganda machine of Goebbels et al. and others um, in Germany, and that here was an artist who was able to create the kind of things and speak the way he did and to speak truth to power. You know, that's what I was a phrase I was trying to think of earlier. But yeah, uh, she... She embraced it, and and she felt her father would have also, and I, I'm i convinced he would have embraced this exhibition in Berlin.
1: If you absolutely were forced to pick an era or a uh, genre within all of the work that he does that particularly resonates with you, what would that be?
0: Well, it's a great question because I don't know that I want to leave out. I'm as fond of his. 1909 sketchbook that I once held, and his cover that I held for his 1911 Paris sketchbook, you know, and those discoveries and holding those in my hands are just so precious, as opposed to some of the great art that came out of the 1920s. I mean, if you looked at his scribe from 1927, the piece called "The Scribe," oh my God, where 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 modernism is bumping up against um, you know the, the renaissance in that period and you see the, 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 i mean how could i say that i would prefer world war ii art and the genius of the collier's covers that he did as opposed to the 1920s the scribe or the artwork that he did for the creation of is the state of israel or even that peace father did not forgive them of the Ku Klux clan standing over the black man I can't. I wouldn't. I I could not dare pick one over the other. I have my favorite, I do have favorite pieces, but when I, so, but if you asked me, and I'll ask myself, what's your favorite piece? I'd respond with the answer of 10 or 20. I mean, I wouldn't. De Profundis affects me, as its title suggests, profoundly. And the scribe moves me intellectually. And and the 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 cover that he did for Columbia Yearbook in nineteen thirty three thirty four when he was here for America, just you know inspires. Me. You know, I I'm not I can't. That's the problem with even talking about Arthur Sick, and that's the why we would be talking for hours more because there's so much to embrace.
1: And you're currently putting together an index of his work.
0: Yeah, I'm working on um, a book. I think it's becoming a book now of um, every institution in the world and every original work of art that's in those institutions. And there's about 30 institutions, and we're able to identify hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of works of art of his that are in these institutions. So it's my next. Project I'm working on so that this will be available to the institutions who have copies and avail, and hopefully to make this available also on the internet as well, in addition to a printed book, so that everybody will know, you know, for future scholars, for people who want to curate his exhibits and a few long after I'm gone, hopefully the people will not too soon, but, but, but they'll have access to where to find his art. And what is available, even though there's tons of wonderful works that are in private collections now, even but uh, but there's lots that have been conserved and preserved, and you know that's been my job to find them over the years, and so I like, you know now to take it and make it easy for everybody to find, even though many of the books that have come out do site where these works are found, nothing will do it like this will
1: so. And uh, you've mentioned over uh, the course of our conversation, different projects that you have going on. Uh, mm-hmm. Is there anything else that you have or in the, in mm-hmm. the works or are planned for the future?
0: Yes. Well, right now I'm actually working on my memoirs, which is, uh, called it, um, reviving an artist's fame, uh, my life with Arthur Schick. And, um, I wrote, I've written the first draft and, and now I, at first I was writing it for myself and then for my kids. And well, then I thought, well, maybe my kids will only read one chapter. After all, they see dad all the time. I would, I want to read a book about him. Right. But, and then I thought, well, will make copies to some friends or some people who know me. And then I've sort of, we started to reposition it to think about how to write my story about a chick and my love for him and bringing an artist back and how you do it. And, all the intricacies of it. And I decided, you know, maybe I should try to write this for people who've never heard of Schick and never heard of me. How do you write a story that maybe could be engaging other people? So that's what I'm working on right now. Now I'm on my first rewrite and who knows me, you know, maybe I'll find a, uh, an agent or somebody who wants it and thinks, yeah, this really is a good story. Maybe, you know, maybe we can take it to some publisher. And so I'm, that's what I'm working on now. I and, uh, that's where all these stories will be told, and well, unless I gave it away, and people just listen to this, now they don't need to memorize.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'd also seen reference to a doc or a full full length film.
0: Yes, yeah. um, well, that's another thing I'd love to do. I've made three or four short documentaries. I guess you can see them on YouTube if you go to my business, the Historicana. Uh, channel, which is my business, and you could see them there. But you'll see others there, and yeah, there's lots of. Uh, so I, yeah, there's Arthur Schick Soldier in Art, and then there's Soldier in Art Arthur Schick. I love the title so much. I've used that, and then there's uh, a, a film that I've made about the making remaking of the Hagada and uh, but I want to do. I've I've shot over, over many many years, um, probably does it I'm uh, going back to. Yeah, probably 12, 13, 14 years of footage that I have to make a big picture. I think I want to finish most of my memoir before I start documentary. I don't know. Um, but uh, that's sort of my, my thought. I mean, I'm not start on it, but really then step it up, you know. When I get involved in a project, or go for it. So now I have all this hundreds, hundred, more than 100, probably 20 hours of footage for this one full-length documentary. Maybe it's a series of films. I don't know. You know about Schick's life, really, and about my life with Schick. I don't know.
1: Well, I'm looking forward to your memoir and the film, (laughs) whenever it uh, uh, takes shape and and comes to life.
0: (laughs) Thanks so much, Stephanie. I really appreciate that.
1: Yeah, thank you so much, Irvin, for reviving Schick's mission and his message and bringing it to our current generation and for others. And uh, you're doing it with such zeal. It's very inspiring. So, thank you.
0: Well, you're welcome. Uh, thank you for the time for me to sort of tell this uh, tell this story and the, the time that we have. You've uh, uh, given me an awful lot of time, but, you know, Chick deserves it. And I um, uh, really thank you for, for, for making this possible and uh, thanks to all you who've listened I I appreciate it and go out and tell two or three people about Arthur Schick that would be good spread the word
1: there will be a link in the show notes to learn more about Arthur Schick and to view his work if you enjoyed this podcast it would be much appreciated if you could leave a rating or review and tag Warfare of Art and Law Podcast you can also email your comments to stephanie at warfareofartandlaw.com until next time This is Stephanie Droddy bringing you Warfare of Art and Law. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. What are your plans for the second Saturday of this month? perhaps consider joining in for a discussion about art, culture, and social issues. Hi everyone, it's Stephanie, and every second Saturday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, I host the Second Saturday Art and Justice Gathering, an online call that explores a range of topics, from artists who might inspire to legal decisions that might infuriate, all with the aim of sparking dialogue about social justice and promoting creative thinking. If interested, please email me at stephanie at